The second lesson this morning comes from John 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this reason that I have come, in, come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John is leading us to Jerusalem. John 11 is sort of a turning point in the chapter, and the rest of the book will be about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, which is his journey to the cross. And in particular, in John's gospel, the glory of Jesus, the epitome of his life, the culmination of it, is the cross and Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Jesus is on his journey to that glory. And John's book is full of, of, of stories and, um, and Jesus' lessons on the journey to the cross. This encounter is one with some Greeks, John tells us. The Greeks approach Philip, who has a Greek name, and he is from Bethsaida in Galilee, the text tells us, which in other words means he lives in an area where he rubs shoulders often with Greeks and so is familiar and knows the language well, knows the custom, knows the culture. So maybe they're comfortable approaching Philip. They come up to him. And they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip's not sure what to do, which seems odd because Jesus is usually, you know, has, has, has showed them time and again, just bring anyone who's coming, bring them to me. But Philip's not sure what to do because Jesus has been a little bit cagey about bringing his good news to the Greeks. So he goes to Andrew, the only other disciple with a Greek name. And they both decide to bring the news of these Greeks or perhaps the visitors themselves to Jesus. Up until this point, Jesus has stayed in areas that are primarily Jewish. I don't entirely understand why the Gospels make such a note of the fact that Jesus goes first and foremost always to the Jews. He even says things like, I haven't come for the Gentiles, I've come for the Jews. I mean, a couple months after his ascension, the Gospel will have been heard in every known language, and people from all over the place will begin to call Jesus Lord. And so it's obvious that the arc of Jesus' ministry is to the entire world, but Jesus 
has focused his public ministry in Jewish areas. But here the approach of these Greeks in Jerusalem symbolize a moment where Jesus' ministry is beginning to reach beyond the Jewish community. And it seems like a, seems like a signpost to Jesus, an assurance that yes, in fact, the time is coming to a close for his ministry. His death is near. These Greeks want to see Jesus. But I have to imagine that they're disappointed in their encounter with him. I think they must leave him kind of like the rich young ruler left Jesus. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And he's expecting an answer that will boost his ego. His, his, he'll leave more assured than ever of his salvation. And Jesus tells the rich young ruler to go sell everything and give it to the poor and then come back and find me. And he tells him this, not because that's how you save yourself, but because the rich young ruler is asking the wrong question, because perhaps the humble realization that the rich young ruler has that he could never do that, that he could, in fact, never save himself, is perhaps the first step on his way to salvation. He leaves humbled and sad, and maybe that is the moment of his salvation. The Greeks come to Jesus because he's trending. His numbers are growing. Peter has his sword sharpened. They're ready to go into Jerusalem. It is the moment. It is the time. Everyone has rallied around him. And the Greeks want to be the first of the non-Jews to get in on it, perhaps. They have a, a Greek, a Hellenistic paradigm understanding of what it means to be human, which, you know, is something like carpe diem, seize the day. And the day is there for Jesus to seize. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, the time of my glory is here. But then he keeps talking. And he tells them the time of his glory is also going to be the time of his death. And in what story does that make sense? In John's gospel, Jesus is is fully aware, it seems, of the details of how he's going to die. He knows what's going to happen, in John's account in particular. And he says, my soul is troubled. Another translation says, I am anxious to the core. And in the other gospels, in Gethsemane, you get this prayer where Jesus literally asks God to not let this happen. My soul is troubled. I am anxious to my core. What should I do? Should I ask for this not to happen? This anxiety is exactly why I was sent here. This cross is the reason I came. I heard a theologian this week talking about um, this passage. And she talked about being in the eighth month of pregnancy And having that moment that she says most women have where you realize that you're going to have to give birth. Which seems obvious, she said. um, But apparently it's a pretty common experience in the later stages of pregnancy to have this moment of realization, this, oh shoot, I've got to birth this child. 
and it's terrifying um, because you, you, you've known it's happening, but there's this realization, she said, where, where, and you don't know what to do with the fear and the anxiety of it, and you pull from the strength of all the women that have given birth before you, and you somehow work up the courage to go through with it, because there's no other way. And Jesus, he suggested, is having a similar sort of moment where he knows what's coming, what's going to happen, and he's scared. He's anxious. My soul is troubled. I don't think it's a throwaway line. I think he's worried. I think he's nervous. That's part of what makes it miraculous, that he is willing to go through with it when he has every option along the way of of diverting, of going down a different path, of telling a different story. But the story that he has come to tell is the one of childbirth, of giving birth to life through great pain. Jesus is not spared the anxiety and fear about what he's going to go through. But this is exactly what he has come for. He is headed towards great pain And that's why he came. Oh, and he adds, where I am, my servants also will be. I imagine the Greek visitors slowly backing away from Jesus as he explains his grand plan of achieving glory. In what universe does that story make sense? In what universe does this death, this giving up of power, In what story does the cross make sense? Alan was in sixth grade when he died. He was 12 years old. Patrick, the director of the orphanage that Alan grew up in, told me that while he was growing up, Alan talked all the time about being in seventh grade. Seventh grade is the year before high school in Uganda. He talked about what it would be like to be a seventh grader, to be so grown up, to take the national exams that you take when you're in seventh grade. On Wednesday of this week, I was in Uganda with Patrick and we drove four hours through Uganda in a dusty rundown van to go see Alan's grave. Alan was buried on a plot of land that a family friend made available But the plot is a two-hour drive once you've cleared Kampala's traffic and then another hour off of the main road down dirt paths that are mainly used by motorbikes. I didn't know it was going to be an eight-hour trip when we set out. I was told it might be three. Alan's parents died from AIDS like many of his generation. He was brought to his grandma's house, but... She was barely able to take care of herself, and as much as she might have wanted to be younger or to be wealthier and to be able to care for Alan, she just couldn't, and no other family was able or willing to take care of him. So she asked around until Raising Up Hope in Uganda, the orphanage that Sonia and I work with, said they were able to take him in. Alan was another child, lost in a generation of kids who grew up on their own. We had to bring an elderly woman from the area where Alan was buried along with us in order to navigate the little roads near the village where he was buried. We called her Jaja. She wore a tremendous oversized dress and almost pulled me out of the car while I was helping her up into the back seat. 
She lifted her grandson onto her lap with one strong arm, and I sat pressed against her for the long journey. Alan was killed by a faulty electrical outlet. He was mopping in the boys' orphanage home. A socket came loose, and Alan went to fix it. And when his brothers found him, he was dead. It was senseless. People tried to make sense of it. But all of their sense was offensive. Some things don't make sense. The boys are afraid of plugging things in now. Jaja sat in the shade of the mango tree near Alan's grave. Patrick, William, my other Ugandan friend, and I went over to Alan's grave. Two graves had large cement slabs engraved with names and dates. Alan, Patrick told me, was the rectangle of red dirt that had been overgrown with weeds and grass. And I knelt down and began to pull back the weeds and pick out the grass that had begun to cover the grave. It was all I could think to do. We spent a few minutes remembering him. Then William said a prayer, mainly of thanksgiving for Alan's life. I prayed as well. And then we made the four-hour journey home. At about hour seven of this day, I began to wonder whether the trip was worth one of our few days in Uganda. We could have used our time better. We could have used money more efficiently. It was a full day of driving down terrible roads on uncomfortable seats, all for 20 minutes of limp prayers and what am I supposed to be feeling moments. I felt deeply that it mattered to make the trip, but I couldn't say why. When I said this to Patrick, he said it mattered in a way that reassured me. Remember, Aaron came and preached last year? And he said, in what story does it make sense to go to church, to give your money away, to go to Uganda, to go to Garfield Park, to not lose hope, to celebrate Easter, to somehow put Jesus at the center of your life? In what story does it make sense to do any of that? And in the context of a lot of stories, it didn't make sense to spend an entire day traveling to pick some grass off of a tomb that no one else knew about. But it mattered because in Uganda and as the church, we are in the business of telling alternate stories. Counter stories, if you will. It matters because in Uganda, we're a part of a counter story that says that the lives of these kids matter. It's a story that's told through foolish all-day trips to visit the grave of a child that the world has washed its hands of. We get to be a part of creating alternate stories for kids that shouldn't have had a chance. Kids that are too addicted, too old, too far gone. People have heard about Jesus. They've been mystified and drawn into this foolish sort of following that has gathered around him. He's telling a different story. When he is supposed to have judged someone, he has shown mercy. When he is supposed to have shown deference to someone, to the religious, to the elite, he has offered judgment. When the crowds get largest, he sends them away. When there's an opportunity to play to the crowd, to grab a headline, 
He avoids it. Now as he travels to Jerusalem and people everywhere are rallying around him, he is supposed to grab power, but he will let go of it instead. Jesus' life comes to its culmination, its purpose, to its glory in his journey to Jerusalem. And it is this moment in the story where God is supposed to vanquish those who stand against him, but instead he will die for precisely them. What we learn in this story in John is that Jesus is telling a different story. And his victory, his beauty, and his glory are not the condemnation of the world, but the hope of the world through his own death. In what other story does it make sense to seek greatness by being the servant of all? In what story does it make sense to die to yourself? To give up your own comfort and security for the sake of another? To lay your life down for another? To waste a day on someone? To spend a day inefficiently? We want to see Jesus, they said. But Jesus was going to the cross. To that foolish place. And who would want to go with him? All I could think to pray when I was standing at Alan's grave on Wednesday was a borrowed line that the angels of Easter say to the women who have come to the tomb, why do you look for the living among the dead? Those women who go to the tomb on Sunday morning just to be with the body of Jesus And they bring their expensive perfumes and their ointments to foolishly cover his body. They are exactly where they're supposed to be. They are looking for the living among the dead. And that is the story that we are a part of. Looking for and expecting life and the living in the foolish places where it's not supposed to be. Let's pray. Give us the courage and the audacity to be like the women of Easter morning who rise with the sun and who show up at the tomb. Who foolishly show up after all hope is gone, to be with the body of Jesus. And who discover the living among the dead. May we spend some time foolishly this week with people and in places where we might be hard-pressed to find hope in life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.